You are listening to a Whitebridge Baptist Church sermon podcast. In the very well-known Chronicles of Narnia that C.S. Lewis wrote, Mr. Beaver is talking with the four children that have entered Narnia through that magical wardrobe, and he tells them about Aslan, the Christ figure in the story, that It is noticeably absent. He is noticeably absent from his dominion in these days, he says. And uh, that in his place, this white witch of the winter has brought her venom and has actually transformed this beautiful place called Narnia into a very sad place. In fact, it's a place where it's described that it's always winter but never Christmas. Can you imagine that, eh? Always winter but never Christmas for a child. That's... That's horror. (laughs) And so as the children are talking with Mr. Beaver about the longing for Aslan's return, he tells them about the ancient prophecy to be fulfilled. Already there are rumors that Aslan is on the move, and so with contagious hope, Mr. Beaver cannot contain himself, and so he spills out and shares the prophecy with the children. He says this, he says, wrong will be right When Aslan comes in sight, at the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bares his teeth, winter meets his death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. Wrong shall be right when Aslan comes in sight. You know, for the whole church age, the, the, the Christian church has been longing for this hope. This hope of the Messiah, Christ himself, returning and, and righting the wrongs. In fact, it is, it is so much our hope that we look to no other place than Jesus alone to be the one who can right the wrongs of this world. And so we continue today in this theme of Jesus, hope of the nations. I love the passage in Isaiah chapter 61 where Jesus is in his hometown of Nazareth and he is given, he walks into the synagogue and he's given the scroll of the prophet Isaiah and it it says in the scripture in Luke chapter 4 that he, he opens up the scroll and he turns to Isaiah chapter 61 and he reads the passage there. He says, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has anointed me to bring freedom for prisoners and sight for the blind and release for the oppressed and to declare a year of the Lord's favor. What better place for for Jesus to go pro than in his own home synagogue in Nazareth as he begins his earthly ministry. And yet they could not receive it. They could not receive it. And, and Jesus is not understood. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light. Jesus, hope of the nations. And yet many would not receive him. This morning, I'd like to take another look at a different prophecy from Isaiah. And we're going to not look at it in Isaiah, but rather we're going to turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 12, where the gospel writer puts it all together and connects the dots between the servant of of Isaiah chapter 42, 
with Jesus the Messiah that he has now, Matthew has now come to be a disciple of. And so you find in your Bibles in Matthew chapter 12, the passage that we're going to look at. Matthew chapter 12. And uh, we're going to begin reading in verse 15. If you'll stand with me if you're able to, uh, join me in listening to the word of God. Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. Many followed him, and he healed all their sick, warning them not to tell who he was. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Here is my servant, whom I love, whom I have chosen, the one I love and whom I delight. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out until he leads justice to victory. And in his name, the nations will put their hope. God bless his word. You may be seated. Don't close your Bibles. Notice the context of Matthew chapter 12. We read in earlier portions of chapter 12, verse 1, that Jesus is having a few Sabbath day experiences. He's with his disciples in chapter 12, verses 1 to 8, and he's walking through the grain fields. I'm sure you've done this. Uh, folks from Swan River definitely did this, I'm sure. They, they walk through the grain fields, and, they, and as they're walking along, they just let the grain go through their fingers, and then they just squeeze their fingers, and they grab some of those heads of grain, and they, and they, they put it together in their mouth, and they, and they just chew on that. That's what the disciples were doing on, on the Sabbath. But the Pharisees had rules about things like that. And so they took, confronted Jesus. And then in verse 7, he kind of sums up his answer. Verse 7 of Matthew 12. And he says, If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the, the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And then it continues on. And, and in verse 8, Jesus in, enters the synagogue and, and there, another dilemma confronts him. There's a man that has a crippled hand. And he doesn't confront Jesus, but, or approach Jesus, but rather the, it seems like the, the Pharisees used this man as a, as, a, as a trap for Jesus. And it says in verse 10 that looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Jesus argues from very simple logic, and he says in response, if you have a sheep and and he falls into a pit, are are you going to leave him there or are you going to pull him out on the Sabbath? And then he says, aren't men more important than sheep? And then therefore Jesus kind of gives this blanket statement, which is incredible. Probably drove them crazy. He said this, so here's the rule. It's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. (laughs) And then Jesus proceeds to heal the man and that causes them to leave the synagogue and the Pharisees, it says, look for a a time to kill Jesus. And that's where we pick up our verse 15 where it says that Jesus was aware of the plot to kill him and so he withdraws from that place. And I, I want to pause there for a moment before we jump into the prophecy in verse 18 to 21. Because before we get into the prophecy, I want the plain plain, simple narrative of Matthew's account to speak a word to us. And it's a very simple surface, kind of don't almost miss it. You know, if if you're not careful, you could almost miss this. 
But it's in verse 15. It says that he withdraws from that place. And to me, the the lesson that the narrative that Matthew writes here is that Jesus withdraws his presence from cold, careless legalism that is more concerned about pigeonhole conformity than showing mercy to someone that's suffering. It's staring at us in the face here. Jesus withdraws from places of stuffy religious self-righteousness devoid of genuine love. I'm not suggesting he withdraws from truth and orthodoxy, but wherever that we find hair-splitting, rule-keeping, nitpicking religion, and it gets in the way of mercy being shown, you won't find Jesus there. He's left the building. It's not in his religion to be that way. People matter. Verse 7 again. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. I have a very simple outline for the verses 18 to 21 that we're going to look at right now. And it's very simply God's man, God's mission, and God's means. And so let's take a look at these three. First of all, in verse 18 with God's man. If you're able to receive this, what I'd like you to see in this text is that Jesus, having just experienced some of mercy and justice being shown on a micro level with a man that's got a shriveled hand and with some disciples that were hungry on the day of Sabbath, I think now the the prophecy of Isaiah is used by Matthew to take us to the macro level that's going to be justice for the nations. And so that's where I think... The text takes us. Now, Matthew knew his Old Testament very well, of course. And so he makes the connection between the servant of of Isaiah 42, verse 1, and the Jesus that he has come to follow. There are four servant songs in Isaiah. And the New Testament identifies Jesus as the suffering servant that is spoken of in Isaiah so many times. And and it's really a fulfillment of what Israel was meant to be, this kingdom of priests that is meant to serve the nations. And in verse 18, it says, Here is my servant whom I chosen, my beloved, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. Does it not sound strangely familiar, that that verse? Does it not sound like the the time when we heard a voice from heaven come at Jesus' baptism or at the transfiguration? Remember, and it came from heaven and said, This is my beloved son. With him I am well pleased. That's exactly the way this language speaks as well. And the word that's used for the word servant here is not the, the normal word for servant. It's actually a word that could be used for an intimate service. Even it's used of children or sons and daughters sometimes. And so not just a Moses or a Jacob or a David, but this is my servant, my son. Jesus is the chosen servant of God, fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy, coming into the stage of history in the New Testament and fulfilling the mission of God, which is to bring justice to the nations, it says. Now, if you'll just permit me to take a little bit of a, a detour, I, I would like to describe something that I think is true to um, all religions. All religions have three basic elements. And, and the first one is that in all religions, all developed religions, I should say, 
there is this understanding of what some have called the numinous experience. The man who made that popular was a guy named Rudolf Otto in the 20th century, early 20th century. This numinous experience is this understanding of something beyond the physical and concrete world. It's something spiritual, the spirit world, the supernatural world, the deistic world. There's a numinous experience in every developed religion. So that's the supernatural experience. The second experience is a moral experience. That every developed religion as well has a sense of right and wrong and oughtness to it of what should be and should not be done by humans. And so there's a supernatural experience, a moral experience, and then the third element of all developed religion is that the linking of those two is the understanding that somehow the supernatural that I I believe in, and the moral code that's upon me linked together so I am responsible in my moral and ethical outworking to that being. So that's all developed religion. You could describe it in various ways. We saw it in Northeast India when we were there, and I would walk by a Hindu temple, or I would walk by two Buddhist monks, or we would uh, hear the call to prayer at 4.40 in the morning, from the mosque in, 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 the, in the city. All developed religions have these three things. You can read more about those in, in uh, C.S. Lewis's book, The Problem of Pain. In the first chapter, he develops this hypothesis. But Christianity adds a fourth that is not found in other religions. And that is the incarnation, which is what Christmas is all about. It's why we, we should, be, should be why we make such a big deal of the incarnation. It is the belief that a man was born and that that man really, really contained all of God in his person. That he was the the sum total of God, but in the flesh. No other religion believes that. We say that's true. There's only two responses that you can have to that teaching. Either Jesus was a lunatic and what it says in the scriptures of him in this way is wrong or it is absolutely true and he is very God of very God. There is no middle ground. It's either true or it's not true. Can't be half true. That's incredible. Now, most humans on the face of the earth believe the first three. In some capacity, they believe in the supernatural, in a moral responsibility, and in an accountability to some being, some deity, some spirit world, some afterlife. But only Christ and only Christian faith says that that God came down to bring about the solutions of justice and peace on earth. That the way is not going to be found from us toward God. It cannot be made. It has to be received because of the grace of God. And so we read last week, John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus, as Haggai 2.7 says, is the desired of the nations. So that's the chosen man that we're talking about. That's the chosen man 
called the servant in Isaiah's prophecies and identified by Matthew as Jesus Christ in his day 2,000 years ago. What's the mission that Jesus was sent to perform? In verse 18, it simply said this, to proclaim or bring justice to the nations. First of all, the nations here is the word ethnos, the same word that is used in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 19. Go and make disciples of all nations. That's important. The reason it's important is because the, the mission of God, the gaze of God, the focus of God's heart is not determined by political boundaries that are on the globe or on the map at any given time in history based on the nations and their geographical territory. That is not what is meant by nations here. But rather, this is a word that describes ethnicity. It is a word that describes bloodlines, people groups. The English uh, conversation circles had a little bit of experience with this concept because in recent years, we've had a Kurdish family that has met with us on a, on a weekly basis, and, and we've been getting to know them. Now, if you were to go to the United Nations someday, and you were to visit them, and you were to look at their list, you can go online and do it, you can look at their list of 193 identified state nations, you will not find the Kurdish people represented there. Even though they're an, an ethnic group, where do they live? Well, they live in northern Iraq and northeast Iran. They live in Turkey and they live in Syria. Huge group of people. But they're not represented at the United Nations. They must depend on other leaders from those countries, other ethnicities, to somehow represent them. And that kind of story is duplicated around the globe in different ways. You see, what Jesus Christ's mission is, is every people group. When we look at Revelation 5 and 7 and those passages, every family, every nation, ethnos, every people group, every, the Kurds will be there. Praise the Lord. That's an incredible statement, what, what's being stated here. The mission of God. The mission of God is to invade earth with justice and it's going to affect all ethnicities. Now, since Matthew is quoting from Isaiah, let's take a look at the word justice as it's found in the Isaiah passage, which is in Hebrew and it's in the Old Testament. The primary word is used about 200 times and the best definition that I could come up with from my readings is this, that justice is a rightness rooted in God's character that ought to be an attribute of all humanity. That's justice. It is a rightness rooted in God's character that he intends for to, be, to be upon all of humanity created in his image. It's intrinsic to who God is. Rene Padilla, uh, Latin American author, says that the practice of justice is at the center of God's purpose for human life. See, once a people are made right with God, God writes His justice upon their hearts. And they begin to seek a just society. How do they do it? 
One of the passages that best explains how it's done is a passage that you'll find in our constitution of our church because it encapsulates so much in just one verse. Micah chapter 6 verse 8. What does the Lord require of you? But to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Now, are are the ideas of acting justly and loving mercy in any way in competition with each other? I say, no, they're not. And they're not, we know, because even in our own walk with God, in spiritual life, in salvation of our souls, justice and mercy are not in competition. You see, for me as a sinner, I am, justice calls for me to be judged And God is absolutely just and justified to judge me in my sin. But in His mercy, Jesus Christ comes down in the incarnation and He, through His act of work on the cross, He justifies me before the Father. And He supplies the justice, what justice holds me ransom for. And by His mercy, I'm set free from the just demands of the law. And now I have relationship with the living God. But it's in a just way I've received mercy. If we apply this on the horizontal plane, in the way that we live out our lives on earth, this is the way it looks. We seek a fair and just society. But we know that it's not possible in this age. We know. If you give it a little thought, you know that there are enormous, multiple factors as to why we do not live in a fair and just society. There are so many factors at work to not make the playing field level. There are economic, for example, factors. There are economic inequities that just make it absolutely plain and simple. You and I, born in this country, do not have a fair playing field with those that are born in some very poor country where systemic poverty is the rule of the day. And we could describe genetic and hereditary factors that do not make it a level playing field. You live beside people like that. You work with them. You see them. There are genetic reasons why we don't all start at the same place. Many of us have a head start. There are reasons of ethnic and racial reasons why in certain countries and at certain political times, some ethnic groups will have a way more head start than other ethnic groups. And there are reasons of social, there are medical, mental reasons, physical reasons. You could, you could list a host of reasons why we do not all get dealt the same hand. So what do we do with that? I believe that what God teaches us is that mercy is the thing that God gives us to try and make a level playing field. Mercy is the thing that God puts in our hearts and hands to create a just society, to try and level off the playing field, to try and lift up the ones that had a hard start or that continue to have a hard life. A just society is the norm to be pursued, but it does not exist apart from mercy and God's people being merciful. In the Old Testament, justice, the the word I referred to used 200 times, justice calls for 
a special favor to be given to four groups of people. I was talking to Mark between the services. Mark says, downtown Winnipeg, I see all four of these groups of people. Justice in the Old Testament is, is calls for special care to be given to widows and orphans and immigrants and the poor. You read your Old Testament, you look up those four in a concordance, you'll find them scattered throughout the Old Testament. Justice means you look after the widow, the orphan, the immigrant, and the poor. The success of a society, according to Scripture, is evaluated by how it treats these four groups of people, and any neglect shown to the needs of the members of these four people groups is not a lack of mercy only, It's not just a lack of mercy or charity, but in the scriptural sense, it is a violation of mishpat. It is a violation of justice. What does that say to us? What does it say to the haves and living in a world of have-nots? What does it say to us? If we compare ourselves with one another in our giving and living kinds of practices, where does it take us? Maybe to some self-righteousness, but not to justice. And so some authors have talked even so far, and I don't think I agree with this, but that God has a preferential option for the poor, for the widow, for the Immigrants for the orphans. You know, the Christmas card campaign that Heather's put together is is just great. And I believe that in some small measure, it's just a slice of life where we are trying to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly, right? And so when we give uh, $10 and get a card and send it to somebody, uh, a duffel bag is going to be given to somebody in the inner city that Mark and others work with, and it's, it's going to give them a duffel bag to go to camp with. If we give $50, we could actually send them to camp for a weekend. Again, your children, my children, we have access to camp. It's not a problem, but not everybody has access to camp because it's not just, is it? And the Living Bible Explorers is, is doing a great ministry in central Winnipeg. Pathway Camp Ministries works in northern Manitoba among Aboriginal communities and reserves. And I think they're in about 10 different places. We, our church is specially partnered with Garden Hill. And Rick and Elizabeth Greer have asked that just one focus, that, that we would send kids to Youthquake. Because there's not equal access If you're stuck on a reserve somewhere and you don't get off too often, $25 is all it takes to get you off there and and to get you to Youthquake, is what they're asking. Far Corners Ministry has given us three projects. For $10, it's a mosquito net or a blanket that is helpful. In in the last month, those of us that were in India saw last year's Christmas card campaign money Uh, In a present reality, in the conferences that we taught, the $25 that you send a card to somebody and and you give $25, that was actually bringing pastors and women to the conferences that that Mike and Marcy and Andy and I taught last month. And if you spend $200, we met some of the pastors and their children that are getting that money that takes that child to school for an entire year. I think we did 14 last year and we want to continue to do that because we don't want to have them stop. 
We met those pastors and children, many of them. It's just a small thing, but it's, it's something. Because you see, justice is all about fair access of basic needs and services. It ensures that the vulnerable in society are given special care, that those who are disadvantaged are given more of a level playing field. Justice means that you take away the absence, you, you get rid of the absence of the abuse of power. You get rid of the abuse of power for those that could conduit, flow that, that resource, that help, that mercy to those, and you get rid of that abuse of power. In the words of the Old Testament commentator Kylan Dalich, it's this, justice is true religion viewed on a practical side as a norm, as a standard for life in all of its relationships. And so God says, act justly and love mercy. Now look at the means that God chooses to do this with through, through Jesus in Matthew chapter 12. And we read that in, in chapter 12 and verses 19 and 20, you often we think justice and we, we link it to revenge. Or we link it to punishing someone who's done something wrong. But as someone has said that an eye for an eye policy only makes a society blind. And Jesus doesn't go that route. When Jesus talks about, uh, when, when the scriptures talk about Jesus's means of bringing about justice, it says in verse 19 that he will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. It's suggesting that Jesus did not come as a conquering warrior, a political figure, a dictator, like a Caesar that would force conformity and allegiance to himself. Jesus came as the meek and mild, gentle one that says, come unto me if you're weary and heavy laden. Come to me. Jesus says, it says in in verse 20 of Jesus that a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out until he leads justice to victory. For the bruised and the hurting and and the misfits of society and the have-nots, Jesus is that gentle one that doesn't push them over the edge, doesn't kick them when they're down, but lifts them up, heals them. What a picture of deliverance it is. When I was preparing, I couldn't help but think of the words of God to Moses in Exodus chapter 3 when he says, Indeed, I have seen the misery of my people. I have heard their cry. I have, concern, I have concern about their suffering. And I am coming down to rescue them and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land. And then he says, So now go. I'm sending you. And I think that's the, that's the, that's the message of us. It's the message of Jesus to his church just as it was the message of God to Moses. He's saying, go, I'm sending you. I'm sending you to be the mercy of God and the justice of God upon this earth. And whether it's on a micro level this week that you have opportunity to do that, to act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly, or maybe it's on a macro level that somehow God's going to give you favor, or collectively we will have a bigger impact globally. God says, do it, because that's what my people are all about. Friends, I hope you see the link between what we've just talked about and the the meal that's waiting for us to feed upon, that the Lord's Supper is indeed 
a statement of both justice and mercy. That Jesus, in coming to the cross, upheld the justice of God and in his life and death offered us his mercy. He calls us to do the same. And so as you recommit to the Jesus of justice and mercy, I'm going to call upon those who are going to come now and to uh, engage in this with us. You know, I would ask that maybe we would just stand together to begin with. And uh, as you stand or stay seated, it's up to you, but turn to someone beside you and just say to them, may the peace of Christ be yours. Because you see, the peace of Christ is the justice and the mercy that's, that's combined in a, in a society and in a life. Just turn to someone beside you say, the peace of Christ be with you. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. Isn't it great that the cross is right behind the stable? It's a great reminder that at this season of the year, we don't skip Communion Sunday, and that we have an opportunity to be reminded of why Jesus came. We read in the scriptures that when Jesus was betrayed, he had a meal with the, the disciples and he, he broke bread and he said, this bread is my body given for you. I'm going to ask if Bob could give thanks for the bread. 